Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. We are here <laughs> to tell you why central planning will destroy the environment and whether the anime about Koto Club is better than the anime about Rakugo. Uh, I'm Ryan Salisbury. Sorry, you broke off completely, so I don't know who oh, I am for real? anymore. Yeah. Oh, well, you're uh, just introducing yourself. Oh, hi. I'm, I'm uh, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, today we have a special guest, uh, famous Twitter user, Young Neocon. Hey, everybody. <laughs> How's it going today? Uh, all right. How are you? Uh, we're, doing, we're doing pretty good. Off to a late start. Uh, yep. Yeah, sorry about that. Partly because, uh, well, it's, you know, it's half of your fault, maybe 80% your fault. Uh, uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm totally willing to accept the responsibility for it uh, entirely. <laughs> it's all because you don't make your bed, son. <laughs> Not just my bed. Anyway, uh... <laughs> so today we we wanted to uh, well we actually wanted to do this uh, episode a couple like several weeks ago, uh, but there were scheduling conflicts. But uh, young Neocon had a uh, little bit of a a dog pile on him about a uh, tweet thread he made uh, in response to the idea that Soviet central planning was was a good way to deal with climate change, and um, yeah, it. Blew up pretty big, I think, and uh, so we we wanted to talk about that today. It's like, it's like not, the tweet, the thread itself didn't blow up. I mean, at, uh, what what blew up was the screenshot I did of it that was like making fun of myself, right? So I, <laughs> so I, I, I tweeted uh, something like it was like, uh, oh, who would who would have thought that this would have ended this way? Like, uh, <laughs> like my, the point being that obviously this is was gonna, gonna end this way, but like everybody yeah, took it as me saying like. The opposite. They're like, oh, maybe because you're a social uh, dumbass, da 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, that was the point of the tweet. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know. But, See, I uh, thought I remember people getting mad because you were like uh, mansplaining stuff to a woman. Oh, right. Am I remembering that wrong? Uh, that, that was one of the things that came up later, but. Okay. Uh, but one of the people who said that later apologized for it, too. So it's just like, <laughs> it's just like, because. You know, yeah, it was very weird because it was a dog pile that resulted in like everyone being nice to you and <laughs> apologizing later, <laughs> which is so rare online. Very but, rare. Yeah. I, I suspect that one of my like mufos actually did it like behind like behind my just like went to said something to them. That's my guess. Uh, as to what, that's what I'm. That's my guess as to what happened. Uh, uh, I think like a garbage Twitter. Good mufo. Uh, I think so. <laughs> I, I think so. I, I don't know. I have my suspicions as to who it is, but it doesn't matter. Uh, but I, okay, actually, the whole thing was ironic too because everybody was like just uh, shitting on that tweet and being really mean and being like, "Oh no, stupid dipshit" or whatever. So I was just like, <laughs> I, "So I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to respond to it, even though I know it's a joke. I just like mm. probably will be blocked as a result of this." But I was just like, "I I don't think that this person is stupid, so I don't want to like treat them like they're stupid." And so then I <laughs> so mm. then so then I answered that way, and then just like. Like it had the opposite effect. So all the people who did do the tweets that were like, "Oh, you're a stupid dipshit" or whatever, they didn't get any flack. <laughs> but then, uh, <laughs> but then I did. It was just kind of, you know, uh, weird. And then uh, she later said that she blocked me because she thought I was doing the like, "Hey, dipshit" thing, and because she blocked like a lot of people. Uh, and then, and then oh, later yeah. when she found out that I actually answered, is when she unblocked me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like nothing in your nothing in that thread was very. I have it copied to a Google Doc. I'm looking at it right now. Like nothing was like aggressive or like uh, 
like you weren't looking down on anyone clearly I, I, like you're just I, like saying stuff i did get a little pissy at the end but uh okay but other than that i it was uh very uh yeah uh considered by my standards <laughs> <laughs> but it's like the kind of pissy where it's like uh you know everyone's just repeating this stuff without like really knowing what they're talking about uh, yeah it's just and there's this whole thing too it's just i don't know oh just like I, I you know i've done other threads where i've like not only like given page numbers or whatever but like linked to pdfs or whatever mm -hmm. and i didn't want to do i didn't have the energy and time to do that this time because that takes like literally hours of work uh <laughs> it, it really does it's really uh painstaking and, and annoying actually but um so I just writing like, good tweets is a full time job. Well, no, sourcing tweets with PDFs and getting them yeah. on Skyhub and then screenshotting them and da, da da da. That's like so. It takes so much time. It's just like so, but just like uh, so. All I did that time was just you know screenshot all these books or whatever. And what was funny too is I made sure that about half of the books agreed with me and half of them didn't. I was trying to be very charitable. Uh, and there's kept kind of to be this phenomenon of people trying to like own me by saying like the books weren't relevant so one of them was like oh like by the reason you you the fact that you cited kotkin shows that you uh it's totally irrelevant to this case i'm like uh no he has a freaking a fucking whole book written about a soviet's effect on the environment and uh <laughs> called magnetic mountain a stalinism of a civilization and about like high throughput extraction and the creation of a new industrial civilization and he has two like 100 page sections in his biography of stalin where he goes into the information issues the centralization issues, the economic data, like using like, you know, KGB archives or whatever. And it was just like, I don't know. It's just. Yeah. I think part of the problem is, you know, you're, when you're on Twitter, you're on there with everyone. And so like, usually when you hear anyone talking about uh, the environmental problems of the Soviet union, it's like some dipshit chud guy who's like, Oh, you want to do communism to solve climate change? Well, yeah, the USSR was worse with the environment than anyone else in history so yeah and that's just not true so yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, as far as i know they haven't uh doomed everyone alive to suffer and <laughs> suffer no. to death <laughs> I, mean, I mean some they doom some people but not uh, not everybody no. but, uh, but it's just you know it's funny because my not to totally undercut the premise of all of this but my actual sort of like as we were saying before the show like you know you have to project an air of confidence on twitter yes or, you know, and so it's like my own views on this are actually much more muted than might be uh, apparent. Like I was talking. Right. Well, that's I was, what I was getting at. Like, you, you know, uh, you usually hear that that type of guy that's just like your enemy straight up saying the things that like that you were saying in that thread. But like, you know, you, you obviously were more informed about it. So it, like naturally you have an aversion to anyone saying that because you're just like, Sh fuck off. Like. Well, Capitalism is way worse. What are you talking about? All right. <laughs> right. This is what people assume. I, mm -hmm. It's like, you know? but you no, know, I always try to like concede that stuff right away. So in that thread, mm -hmm. I said literally began with by saying, obviously, capitalism is worse. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Cuba has some great uh, achievements. Yes, China's like putting an investment into green infrastructure. Yes, the Soviet Union was not this. It was not. I mean, it wasn't an eco paradise, but it wasn't like uh, you know. I mean. It wasn't so great for Uzbekistan. It wasn't but, Jakarta. <laughs> but or, yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't like a giant a pile, a pool of uh, floating uh, trash of plastic, yep. uh, or just like dead rainforests with just yeah. like burning orangutans running out of it. But uh, just <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, 
but like uh, 90% of the responses I get to my threads and stuff are people, it's like the only way that their critique works is if they think that like I mean like I'm going to snap my fingers and like make this stuff a reality. Like over, <laughs> right? But I'm not, no, no one can snap their fingers and end centralization overnight. So it's just like, it's just uh, like, it's just, it's so weird to me because uh, the uh, one way I like to think about it is like, if they're right and Soviet style central planning can do the job, then that would just like come out and like pr prove itself and like, it'll be moot anyway, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, like <clears throat> I mean, not- Yeah, not, prove not, me wrong. <laughs> but it, yeah. It's, I, I mean, I don't want to get into like the nuclear discussion, depending on where where y'all are. But one of my main points I make with that one, because everybody says that uh, I'm anti-nuclear, when I say over and over and over, no, I support recycling. Yes, I support uh, uh, fourth gen R and D. Yes, I uh, don't think we should just just take it all out right away. No, yes, I admit that it has lower deaths than coal plants. You know, I say, I, I mean, I can see that all this stuff right away, so it's not even a problem. But my point is that. Yeah, my whole thing is just that it's politically toxic to try and push for nuclear. Like, there's too much energy against it. So, and it's just easier to do other sources of energy. So you may as well just do those. That's yeah. that's definitely true. And when I bring that st political stuff up, that type of person usually dismisses it. But oh yeah. Uh, but my yeah. point to them though is that if we pursue, but the thing like nuclear, like all centralized projects, this actually relates to the central planning things, like. Uh, centralized projects, which require huge stocks of capital and, and expertise and central regulation and whatever, and a large amount of land and so on and so forth, uh, they require like an entire secondary infrastructure of security and logistics and sourcing yeah. and protection and regulating and training and waste disposal and so on and, and making sure that lights stay on, which is actually harder than people realize and just like all this mm -hmm. other stuff, and it centralizes power in one area, which just definitionally makes it easier to just control from a center. Uh, mm -hmm. It also makes it a easier target. Like, imagine if you're a capitalist and you want to subvert a revolution, and they have a centralized hub. You just bomb the centralized mm -hmm. hub, and then it's yeah, over. Yeah. But yeah. it's a, and then uh, but so there's all these issues <clears throat> with that. But like nuclear and like centralization, they require you establish these huge stocks of physical capital and land, and once you do that. Just as a fact, like you have now constrained your future actions, you have prevented yourself from taking other less materially intensive options, uh, and and if it somehow fucks up, it doesn't have to fuck up. But assuming it does, it's incredibly costly to get rid of and undo. So mm -hmm. you're you're locking yourself into a path dependent outcome. But so I always say, I say yeah. Another I, big thing for me is that you need for like to build the plant, you need like very highly specialized engineers that are only good for building nuclear plants like nuclear engineers can't really do much else mm -hmm. other than work on nuclear reactors and you need them 24 7 365 on call yeah, yeah. and as the uh, chernobyl series has amply demonstrated you know um if they get irradiated they die so you just yeah. have to and then there's no more nuclear engineers in the country <laughs> yeah <laughs> damn it that show seems like such a double-edged sword because uh i was at my bar a couple weeks ago and uh, i found out one of the guys that I talked to you there is like a Trump guy and he's talking about Chernobyl and how it proves that socialism doesn't work. I don't, <laughs> like, I don't fuck me hell, dude. <laughs> I don't, is that the takeaway? I mean, I haven't watched beyond the first 30 minutes of the, that was, well, I mean, that was his takeaway. <laughs> and how the people handled it. And like, there's some like poetic and dramatic liberties they've taken as I've read. I'm only in um, episode two, but I, you know, there was like a fucking BBC article, right? You know, 
neolib BBC. Um, and they're like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty good. There's some, some critiques that make sense. Uh, from, and they like talk about people who are literally there saying, yeah, it was about right, except that this guy was not a bad guy. This guy was not a bad guy. They were doing the best they could, but you had to make a fucking story out of it, right? Mm, so, of course. And then a bunch of like, you know, of course, our, our, our leftist Twitter garbage friends, you know, were pretty much having like just one-off discussions about how, well, it was kind of annoying that they had to talk about America, but it was the Cold War. So I guess it was the big bad for the Soviets. Uh, and I also, mean, shitting on I, communism didn't happen that much, so it wasn't too bad, but go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, yeah, it's just, yeah, I mean, it, I, I, yeah, it's not like the Soviets were just, like, sitting around carrying, I mean, they were mm -hmm. right. military, but they weren't just, like, sitting around carrying. Yeah, it's not like they were doing nuclear testing on their yeah. citizens, yeah. Uh, unbeknownst to them, or, like, uh, injecting them with syphilis right, or anything yeah. like that. I actually brought that up to that guy, and I don't know how the fuck he managed to do it, but he somehow deflected it. He just ignored it, probably. Oh, we don't do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, what about the bikini atoll testing? And he's like, oh, well. well uh, we, don't do, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. necessary to invade Hiroshima, right? So, like, duh. <laughs> um, so, anyway, um, I just want to say, last, quickly, last quickly on nuclear things. So, it's like, my solution is always reduce waste, reduce energy use, and uh, yep. reduce throughput. Uh, mm -hmm. as your number one goal. Why? Mm -hmm. Because in doing so, you free up resources for whatever exactly. else you want to do. So if exactly. you want renewable yeah. energy, but you pursue renewable first strategy, you're locking yourself into something. If you pursue exactly. a waste, waste and energy reduction strategy first, then you can still do the renewable energy, but you have more room to maneuver. And I, yep. this, I, I think, like, I, I don't, is, I, maybe this is a hard point to grasp, I guess, but like, it just seems like that this, this this should be sort of obvious that freeing up resources, redu reducing waste, and sort of changing uh, uh, our social and technological infrastructure should always be the number one priority. Because whatever else we want to do, we'll be able to do even better if we do that first. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Central plan. Well, I think not. I think the problem is um, the popular thing in environmental economics for decades now has been energy mm -hmm. accounting, um, and so. I think to them, um, adding energy is like good. Um, so, like, like if you were to if you were to base everything on energy accounting, I I came up with this. I don't know if it's a real paradox that could be named after me, but I think it should be. And, uh, <laughs> well, you are full confident. But uh, basically, that, so. like if you if you go by energy accounting, <laughs> the best thing to do is always to build new generators because then you have more energy to do stuff. Which means like more more freedom and everything, like all the good things that you do with energy, you get more of that by just building generators ad infinitum. Um, and the way, of course, to resolve that is to use temporal accounting, uh, oh. which I don't know if we've talked about it on the show, but basically you resolve everything to you know a time span. So like uh, energy based time accounting would be you take the amount of uh, energy that falls on the Earth in you know a given amount of time, and then uh, you would base your energy values on you know that amount mm -hmm. of time mm -hmm. uh you could take the replenishment rates of resources and then invert it to get the the time value and then you just do everything through time accounting and that resolves the paradox and uh you know if if uh uh building if reducing there's throughput a, gives us more time on earth then there is there is a famous paradox the jevons paradox and so since, en since energy yes. is used to make energy if you look no, mine's better. Energy, <laughs> no, but it's related. So if you lower the cost of 
Yeah, I know, I know. I'm just kidding. You actually mm-hmm. people to use even more electricity than they would have otherwise. So that's the problem. That's mm-hmm. why the mm-hmm. original. This goes back a hundred something years. Now we had something called the hoteling rule. Basically, what it says is that uh, the cost of finite resources should be the uh, product of like a non-linear, like self uh, uh, self summating uh, interest uh, based on the interest rate and and mm-hmm. known available stocks. And basically, mm-hmm. the idea is the price of uh, fixed and uh, declining resources should never fall. Unless like a massive amount of them is discovered somewhere, but right. otherwise, because interest rates, you know, one percent interest rate sounds small, but whatever. After fifty years, that's almost you know what seventy percent or something. You know, I mean, so mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, and the fact of the matter is, is that like, like, well, we don't even follow something anything close to the hoteling rule. I mean, even if we just had capitalism <laughs> the hoteling rule, things would be marginally better. I mean, it, would, right. it still wouldn't work for the long run, but just like, like, had we had that for the last hundred years, I mean, the system yeah. would be different. Yeah. But, uh, and, <laughs> and it's also important to note that, like, uh, this applies in a non-market economy, too. You just, like, you can, as you, you don't need to use the interest rate, you just use, as you were just saying, the temporal accounting of, like, uh, what, how, how much you rate the present <laughs> versus the future, basically. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, very interestingly enough, actually, the Soviet Union had implicit interest rates and shadow interest rates, as they called it, you know, in, in like the in, in these input out, output analysis and linear programming analyses. And what was very interesting was that this like uh, this this thing that like uh, the Austrian econs talk about, which is usually just full of shit, like their whole thing right. about lengthening the period of production by lowering the interest rate. It's, <laughs> Funny that the one one place that actually does apply is through a uh, land-intensive uh, throughput extraction, uh, mm-hmm. and so the Soviet Union and the United States both had artificially lo- low uh, discount rates internal to firms and the government and corporations because that's what centralized bureaucracies do, mm-hmm. and, and so there's always an incentive to uh, put like okay. I mean, just a simple example, like if you have a 10% sales tax, it is now 10% cheaper to become a larger company that owns both sub companies because now you don't have to pay, you know, you know what I'm saying? So like uh, if, you, if you have a 10% sales tax or tariff, you're going to, uh, mm-hmm. if you, uh, the two com- companies merge, you no longer have to pay that cost because it's internal to you. Right. So, yep, exactly. So it encourages centralization, but then centralization that also encourages further of this because like of the fixed costs and fees of investment and risk and hiring mm-hmm. and firing and so on and mm-hmm. the larger the larger you get the larger your like assets and your flows are relative to your fixed costs even if profit isn't rising right. uh, and uh, and also more importantly your market power is greater which means you can uh, charge higher prices and negotiate lower wages for the workers or yeah. uh, companies that's you yeah, absolutely with. true but even if you somehow eliminated like the monopolistic pricing effects these other fixed cost effects would still exist which is uh, which is why uh, so basically neoclassical econ is owned thoroughly <laughs> <laughs> well, I, actually, again, I don't want to well, get too far off into the weeds yeah. on this but uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the funny thing is that like the magnitude of rents and how the role land plays in the economy is actually a point of agreement across these different schools. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. uh, Henry, Henry George, Marx, Ricardo, mm-hmm. Marshall, Corneau, 
Walrus, uh, Jevin sort of, not the Austrians, not John Bates Clark, but the physiocrats. the physiocrats. Well, yeah, I mean, they have a lot of other ideas, but yeah, like, uh, <laughs> definitely related. Yeah. Uh, uh, they don't, they don't place them in the same schema in the same way, but otherwise they basically agree on the uh, point, which is that land's value, since it's fixed, uh, non-produced means of production, and you have to use it in everything. It has inelastic wow. demand. It's fixed in supply, so its value is always just going to be the function of its intensive extension, extens- intensive margin, extensive margin, and absolute margin. Mm-hmm. It's monopoly, and like, mm-hmm. and you can't as long as you have private property and land, you have monopoly. Just like because again, the fixed cost yep. thing. So, uh, even on top of the enclosure aspect. So it's actually like funny is that if you look at the formalisms of of Schraffa and of ecological economics and of Henry George and of Marx, I mean, they they prioritize it differently, but basically it's the same. And in neoclassical economics too, mm-hmm. Joseph Stiglitz showed it with um, the Henry George theorem. So if something has the same magnitude and uh, causal effects and analytic properties across like five totally different models that are fundamentally opposed to each other in other ways, in general, I think that's like ipso facto evidence of its like validity do you know what i mean because if you come to the same yeah. conclusion through different analytic models despite but that just i mean it it shows you i'm sure that a lot of them tried not to come to that conclusion uh, they self-consciously <laughs> did not try to uh, uh john bates clark and all the oil money funded people uh uh didn't want to do that and uh, mm-hmm. Marx waffles on it. I mean, no, and he, he was dismissive of it in, as he was younger. But by the time you get the volumes two and three of Capital and Theories of Surplus Value, he's basically, I mean, it's too bad he died before he finished this because, I mean, Marxians might disagree, will probably jump on me for this or whatever. But, but those books really read to me like someone who's just like, it's like, you know, this Kuhnian paradigm shift. He's the, Marx like came across all the things that his theory had trouble with solving. Mm-hmm. And volume- mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I was reading just this week is um, Inflation as Restructuring by Bickler and Nitzan. And one of the things they were talking about was how uh, right near the end of Marx's lifetime was like a massive change in capitalism where the population growth rate uh, started to mm-hmm. decline, where, where, uh, whereas the productivity growth rate was mm-hmm. increasing even faster. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of totally changed how capitalism worked, where uh, prior to that point, it was ruled by captains of industry who owned factories and um, increased their productivity and all this stuff. And then after that, it was actually the complete opposite. It was ruled by people who are only concerned with distribution, who have no concern uh, with the goings on of industry, except insofar as they limit the output of industry in order to um, capture more of the gains uh, like more of the revenue that it comes is, from it. The Veblen. And the Veblen so Veblen yeah. in 2000 or in uh, 1910 or so uh, wrote about all that stuff and how it was like completely inverted from uh, what it was. Yeah, the difference between business and industry. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I love exactly. I love Thorsten Veblen actually. And it's funny he was at U yeah. Chicago before U Chicago became this sort of like uh, right wing school, uh, <laughs> and That's and wild. actually kind of what happened. I mean, Mason. What if it's right wing because he like because uh, uh, he fucked one of the professor's wives and they, they got so mad that they took over the school? <laughs> I, think, I think they were all doing that anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. but, but actually, uh, what is it like uh, Rockefeller, whoever funded you, Chicago? Oh, yep. okay, that according makes sense. to Mason Gaffney, who's the big Georgist, he wrote this book that calls 
called neoclassical economics as a strategic strategium against Henry George. And, and he proposes a basically conspiratorial narrative. So, I mean, I'm always kind of skeptical of conspiracy narratives, but, yeah. but mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's not like a strong one. He just... But this one is real for I, sure. I, 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 at, least, at, least the, at least the facts he enumerates are true. So it's just like... Yeah. Which is that Rockefeller, Henry George became the best-selling uh, uh, political economist in the United States and the world for a while, um, and he almost won the mayorship of Mayoralty of New York, and all these and all these oh, people wow. got really freaked out. So they they went from like so U Chicago went from being like Rockefeller had this idea of like noble. He really wanted to leave behind this like legacy where like he could like untarnish his name. So it was like he would have this right. school. Independent of his predatory behavior, but then he was uh-huh. like, "Nah." Fuck it. Well, fortunately, that didn't work. Everybody hates yeah, he him said, now. He said, "Nah, fuck it," and then he just so you know, so he went from having people like Veblen, who was a fucking radical, uh, to uh, you know, hiring all these old early neoclassicals who right. were just like, and all and all these like the freshwater schools, as they call them, and these people were just like, "We love helicopters." Well, this is pre-helicopter, but yeah. <laughs> um, and you know it's true, true too that uh, the same thing about that uh, that Mason Gaffney highlights about George and neoclassical economics is also true for human capital and Marxism so human capital was invented as a way to explain a way phenomena that Marxism explained better than neoclassical economics in part mm-hmm. that's like that's like the that's like the Cliff Notes glib version of mm-hmm. it but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Human capital is basically just labor. Right, it's a way to like make labor just labor. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. To dehumanize labor and make it a resource instead of you know. A, anyway, you know, people. Um, so I, I now we're very far from uh, the central. Yeah. So do we want to get into um, like uh, so what are like what are the main reasons that central planning uh, would not be a solution to oh, environmental? So a lot of what problems. I just said, lug tangent, was actually supposed to be. Uh, Converse it to this, so it's just like, uh, yeah, we never get off track here. We're always just talking about you know the main I mean, topic. So it's just like uh, you know we live in a society, right? I mean, so uh, like social facts are real facts. They're not like social doesn't mean less real. Social, political, mm-hmm. uh, cultural, uh, informational, epistemic facts are all still facts. So that's the first thing I want to say. Uh, which is and same you know so and this holds across uh, uh, whatever so you're talking about the political uh, possibility of nuclear power and most people when the advocates of it when you when 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 someone makes that argument they say oh but like by technical efficiency it's better da 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 and it's like okay fine sure right but like do you think that like the pol- political and social and cultural stuff is just going to go away or like what do you think we're going to have like an asocial rationalist society of technocrats no one's gonna have emotions and affects and cultural whatever so that's just like a general point i want to make which is that social facts are real epistemic facts are real cultural facts are real political facts are real and they're varying degrees of um like robustness so some are nigh unchangeable and some change every year um oh can you hear me oh. i can hear you yes yeah. So uh, anyway, with that first uh, point, I want to say that like uh, outside of Twitter, okay, <laughs> uh, Marxians in the social sciences and academia 
don't almost never subscribe to this like purist class reductionist. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, that was actually one of the weird things. Sorry, coming from grad school and then ending up on left Twitter after that, I was like, this is yeah, night and day. Yeah, it's weird. It's like uh, <laughs> it's like vertigo. So. Yeah, like, it really is. Yeah. And so, like, almost no competent Marxian social science will tell you, will claim that you can explain all of the facts about the world through class conflict and history or whatever. Right. I mean, that's a very rare point, a very rare point of view these days. Uh, because it just simply doesn't work. I mean, that's a longer conversation. But uh, uh, anyway, so, uh -huh. like, there's the weirder thing to me is is the hatred of idealism, which just means like not looking at like physics or some shit like that. Like it's such a malleable term, but it means yeah, whatever they want it to mean in the conversation. Like I, yeah, like you think people think about stuff, and that's <laughs> no, idealist. No, like, I'm anti-idealist in the sense that I do not think that cultural and uh, like intellectual ideas have like causal force in history outside of their mobilization through like organizational. Right. power, right? right. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. so that's, I mean, like, that's you know, right? So, but if you know the type of person who thinks that if you just change everybody's mind, the world's gonna whatever, that's idealism. But like, uh, but if you play, I mean, if you don't play a role for ideas, then you, you actually cause yourself a lot of problems. But anyway, exactly. uh, and and for information <laughs> and for culture and all this other stuff, so. Like, there's a reason that Marx is one of, like, five or six founding fathers in sociology, for example, with Durkheim, Weber, Zimmel, Tard, uh, Du Bois, uh, uh, Dewey, and a few other people. And in anthropology, you know, with, like, uh, Tyler, Boaz, Levi-Strauss, uh, Evans Pritchard, uh, uh, Malinowski. David yeah, Graeber. David Graeber went back in time and... Uh, but, uh, <laughs> so, like, like, you know, a lot of Marxians on the internet would be like, oh, yeah, well, that shows why they're stupid, decadent, bourgeois, or whatever. And it's like, and it's like, or maybe it shows that, like, you know, you don't actually have to be stupid to be a Marxist. Like, you could, like, uh, read other points of view and learn about them. It's just like, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, like, I. But also, just to be clear, you can be stupid and be Marxist. That's fine as well. <laughs> It's okay. Everybody to be has the right to be stupid if they so. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I mean, and and, and the, you know, it's funny too, is because like the same thing I just said about Marx is also true for these other ones. There's no radical Durkheimians anymore. There's no radical Weberians anymore. I mean, it's just like, like uh, first of all, grand theory in general has sort of gone much more by the wayside. But like the general understanding is that these people contributed parts of the theoretical explanatory causal and interpretive puzzle and they provided mm -hmm. great method and discipline and subject matter but then other than that we like need to make new knowledge so without that preface right there are certain properties of human social institutions and organizations and social networks and cultures and societies and enterprises and businesses and you know other configurations of people and in bureaucracies that Mm -hmm. These are emergent properties. They are, frankly, I mean, not just epistemically, but, you know, computationally and analytically irreducible aspects of them. So, for example, in social network analysis, there are properties of, like, you know, a whole network 
that you can't know from any of the individual components. You can only know it if you know the whole structure in the first place. Right. <laughs> and so, like, uh, the question is, to what extent do you think the metaphor of the network works for humans and human life? And I think it does yeah. very strongly because of mm -hmm. how successful it's been as an explanatory, uh, predictive, and technological paradigm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that's just like one example: social networks. I mean. And then related is this conflict in uh, economics in, you know, because you know, once neoclassical economics got over its obsession with just, you know, being pedantic dipshits and started, <laughs> and started focusing on, you know, the institutions and information and market design and stuff. I mean, like for 25 years now, most of like the stuff that economists write, not most of it, a substantial portion of it is nothing like what its critics say either on the left or in the rest of academia it's just like you know, i go to these assa conferences and they'll just be mainstream economists just being like oh yeah supply and demand don't exist it's just like it's <laughs> it's like and then and then you know danny roderick in his book uh, i forget which one but he basically says that like he asked them why they do this like why among themselves do they admit this but then to the public or whatever and the, right the, yeah and then the shit lib answer they gave was like, oh, they're worried that if they go out to the public and admit that like free trade isn't the greatest or whatever, then the public will go way too far in the other direction. I mean, it's a totally self-serving <laughs> elitist, uh, whatever. But nonetheless, <laughs> the fact is that within the discipline itself, it's much more varied enterprise than it used to be. I mean, yeah. anyway, um, so one idea that comes up a lot in uh, in economics, neoclassical economics, is like incentive compatibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the idea that if you have an incentive system where you have institutions, uh, I mean, uh, like, so, you know, to have any, to have a social system in economics in a game theoretical model or market design model or whatever, you have to have agents, well-specified norms and rules, and well-specified incentives and yeah. independence of incentives uh, information. And then, mm -hmm. you know, these can be softened, but that's sort of the basic uh, uh, point. But, like, uh, mm. if... Uh, so just as an example of an incentive, uh, say uh, paying politicians more... So that they uh, don't have, uh, they don't do corrupt dealings would be one example. Right, so the example, so just one that's been in in, in the discourse <laughs> this week. <laughs> well, actually, so public choice is where a lot of this stuff originated. Um, mm. It's like uh -huh. you know, politicians have several incentives. One is to like get reelected. Right. One is to get money and power. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. One is to like you know serve whatever else interests they have. Mm. And these are. It, it, Incompatible incentives, right? I mean, probably only one of those is correct for every right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, I think all of them <laughs> apply, but just you know, one one of them wins out. Yeah, right, 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 yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so like the one of the greatest uh, in uh, issues in incentive compatibility is the conflict between information gathering and enforcement. Because the problem is, is that if you have a hierarchy of control. And the people below you uh, are the people collecting your on-the-ground information, but and the people above you are the ones who inf uh, collect information and enforce the rules. Then mm -hmm. you've just created a system where literally the best thing for the people on the bottom to do is to lie or to avoid. Yep. Yep. 
It's just like, mm-hmm. I mean, like, so you have the street level bureaucrat idea with uh, like social workers and then, you know, cops are the evil world, world version of it. Um, right. <laughs> and, and it's just like, you know, the two incentives of enforcing rules and collecting information are literally incompatible in a hierarchy, hierarchical bureaucracy. So that's a great example. Exactly. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so that's like one example of incentive incompatibility. I mean, and, you know, that can be weaker or stronger, but yeah. And, the, you know, the one thing that uh, dipshits always bring up is the socialist calculation debate. Uh, right. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've written about this. It's it's such well, well okay. So it, it actually does make a valid point, but it doesn't. No one infers it. So no one actually like the thing that people take from it is wrong. But like, mm-hmm. so what what do you think the valid point of it is? Because I I think it does not. I, make I mean, a valid so first point of all, all, it's just like, uh, you know, Murawski, Phil Murawski talks about these different theorems in uh, economics and computational economics that show that if you like modeled the economy as a like a as like an uh, as, a, as a computation it would be computable i mean it would just like you know there's all there's uh and like you know um Keen talks about this stuff too where like with a trivial number of agents and commodities you're already getting computations that require more particles than there are in the universe right so it's just like like Right. So my, my problem with that, though, is that their conclusion from that is that the price system is actually capable of doing that, which violates the church tur- church Turing thesis, which is that a, you know, uh, a Turing machine can accomplish any sort of computation that uh, uh, any other uh, Turing right. machine can. And so, like, uh, you would basically have to say that uh, the price system is, like, capable of magically doing some computation that a computer yeah, isn't that's exactly what, that's what, what Murawski's saying is that uh but that's that's funny yeah. but so you actually just did make the that's because you just went to the point i was going to make that that's funny so it's just like the point, the point was i was going to make <laughs> the, the lesson of the uh, is the opposite of what people think it is <laughs> because yeah. the yeah. price system or like any other system that tries to s- solve like a diverse set of simultaneous equations with an absurd number of parameters is not going to work mm-hmm. but right. Especially if it's a self-referential right. one, because that requires that violates the whole thing anyway. Uh, so that's another, <laughs> that's another. And then the other one, which is like the idea of tacit knowledge, and that's a valid idea. Uh, yeah. t- uh, tacit knowledge, right? Uh, so, like you know, embodied knowledge, know-how, local. Mm-hmm. Knowledge. <laughs> so uh, one of the one of the takeaways for me for the uh, calculation problem is that we should not. Like, uh, one of the things people try to do is to try and come up with a system that could calculate, uh, do economic calculation, whereas I think the thing is just to not bother doing that. Um, so I think I've mentioned this before on here, but um, basically what you want mm-hmm. to do is just let people take what they want up to a certain limit. Um, and, you, like, you basically produce to fulfill needs uh, you, you know, you let people take the things that they need. You don't try to guess what it is, um, other than like for the first iteration of production. You know, which is what everyone does. Like any business, if they're trying to figure out how much of something to produce, they uh, guess how much they have to produce, and then they produce that, and then they look at how much uh, sales there are, and then from there they figure out what they're going to do from huh. there. 
And that's exactly what we should do for a, you know, decentralized planned economy. We let everyone take the things that they need um, and then, um, you know, continue producing them based on the actual amount of stuff that people take. And uh, you constrain it to environmental or ecological limitations. Well, I mean, yeah, ecological limitations, that's a simple calculation, right? Well, there's uh, there's a couple models for it. Um, there's the planetary boundaries model um, by uh, Rockstrom, I think, is the main author of that one. And uh, it sets out like seven or 15 different like ecological oh, measures yeah, I've seen that, one. Uh, that measure yeah, the health of the planet. Yeah, it's a pretty, mm-hmm. pretty persuasive one. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, and then I think also the replenishment rate thing that I was talking about earlier, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, you know, for the period that we are trying to deal with climate change uh, would probably be considered a state of emergency yep. where you can kind of violate replenishment rates. But I think other than that, you know, you don't want to use like you don't want to extract more of you something than the yeah. earth is producing. Yeah. Then so you're I was going to say uh, what you just described, I mean, is that's two. There are two variants of that, like uh, Oscar Lang and Alba Lerner proposed a version of that, but their version used the state. And then. Oh, so I very recently yeah. heard of Abba Lerner. Um, yeah, we talked about them on our him, I think, on our yeah, they're uh, chill. last episode. And then the other one is, you know, Robin Honnell and Michael Albert's Paracon is... Oh, yeah. It's, I'm not but a it's, fan. Very similar, it's very similar to what you just described. Well, the thing with... The problem I have with them is... Uh, I don't know if they've changed this, but I've seen this many times from them, which is... Uh, at the beginning of the year, you write down all the things you're going to consume for the following year, and that's just like totally fucking. <laughs> there absurd. does need to be some long term planning for some production, but yeah, they 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 said it can be up. It could be as many many or as few times as you want to update the production schedules you want. Right, uh, so it's like you're having council meetings. It doesn't really matter. That's just sort of be supposed to be heuristic around what you plan. It's not supposed to be like a. Uh, uh, yeah, I I think the best thing to plan long-term would be like the amount of base materials that you produce. And then from there you turn them into products um, that you need. I'm, yes. Does that make I sense? think that just for the, I think we should stay away from solutions right now. Just personally, I just, cause like there's like, that's okay. like, there's uh, cause then we're going to get into a huge discussion. And it's just, you know, but um, right. Right. It, right. Yeah. So, well, back, sorry, to so back to central planning. planning. Right. So wait, wait, I was talking about like, uh, oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So tacit knowledge is like, you know, local knowledge, uh, mm-hmm. you know, now, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And then similar to this though, is like, um, interestedness, like, like, uh, you know, waiting, waiting one stake or like one's, uh, power over something based on how much it, it mm-hmm. impacts them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like, the idea here is that these two pressures, like interestedness and know-how, work against each other. So you have a bunch of people who are really know-how and tacit knowledge and skilled at something, but they have a uh, very strong vested interest in preserving their speciality of their knowledge and, and skewing information to be beneficial to them, right? Because it's their – and then – but conversely – So I, I can give a brief aside on like a uh, theory behind this by uh, Olson – uh, which is uh, it was an attempt to establish like a grand theory of how um, societies uh, grow and decline. And it was basically that 
redistributional coalitions, like groups of people that try to restructure society to uh, take more of its uh, output for themselves, uh, are the reason that things uh, start to uh, get worse for the general population and uh, like ossify and then and then decline subsequently they rip, because they rip, they rip basically the society like, uh, institutions apart from the inside. Right. Yes. Yep. After, exactly. After a certain yeah. point, you is okay. So I, I get, you keep getting ahead because you know, that's another point I was gonna. Uh, three, <laughs> three of the sources Damn. I linked to on that thread actually discussed this for the Soviet Union and for the GDR. But uh, uh, the other, just, <laughs> I was just gonna. The other thing that you have is people who don't, who are objective but don't know anything about the subject. So like those are that's kind of the. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can never solve this. You can always, you can only uh, minimize it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing with enforcement, enforcement versus information collecting. It, these are fundamentally contradictory incentives, but you need, in theory, at least need both of them. So uh, there's never an optimal solution. There's only just satisficing it according to, you know, local stuff. So now we have a couple elements. Now we have social networks with autonomous properties. We have uh, incentive compatibility and diverse contra- uh, contradictory incentives. There's a lot more other little esoteric things we can get into. I mean, we've already touched on them. There's computational uh, information collection and calculation, which is just like, depending on for price system or planning, I mean, it's going to face, if anybody, if any, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, or it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's locally tractable only. It's not, uh, mm-hmm. not globally yeah. tractable mm-hmm. for both logical and empirical reasons. That, I mean, and computational reasons. Uh, this is what people don't understand is that, it's not just that it's too much. It's that it's a certain, it's the kind of computation it's asking you to do. But anyway, um, so there's that one. And then there's the uh, know-how, tacit knowledge, and interest trade-offs. So now we have four things, right? Uh, information enforcement, know-how, uh, interest, uh, social network properties, and uh, uh, calculation issues, information collection calculation and even definition issues right because you need to have shared metrics if you're going to have information but anyway um (laughs) and then and then similar to that we have the problem of coordination and whatever else you want to say about things like prisoners dilemmas and cooperative games and so on Mm -hmm. i mean the fact of the matter is is that as a formal model against which people can compare behavioral and uh computational models and lab studies uh it does a very good job as like uh, as showing uh, showing like where it's wrong. Do you know what I mean? So it's like uh, like but yeah. what repeatedly comes out across all of this literature is that like basically any any based on all the behavioral evidence they have across cultures, groups of people, framings, and different rule sets or whatever, and so there you're going to have some portion of the population which like. Cheats out of self-interest. Some small portion that cheats out of malice. You're gonna have one small portion. You're gonna have a portion that is committed out of self-interest, and then a portion that's committed out of uh, belief or whatever. You know, and you're gonna have you know these different components. And this is true in the behavioral studies and the computational ones and the field ones. And but what doesn't happen is uh, like non-cooperation, uh, except if the rules are set up in such a way that they encourage that. Uh, and so then you start to get to this really interesting thing of like, oh, is humanity selfish or whatever? And is humans rational? It's like, well, sort of, but also it really, it really <laughs> depends on the metrics, the rules, the norms, the incentives, and the information at play. And once you have right. those five things fixed, everything else is sort of fixed, right? So it's like um, only one type of market converges to 
equilibrium, let alone quickly and uh, uh, efficiently, and it's the Dutch auction. And, uh, and But oh, it yeah, does yeah. that even when you use zero intelligence agents, which shows it has nothing to do with the properties of the individuals and entirely derives from, mm -hmm. the, from the information incentives, rules, and uh, metrics, right? It's a market be it's a that's a longer thing. But anyway, so uh oh no, this is my point, but I swear I had a point here. Uh it's like uh <laughs> uh oh my god. Yeah, just as a general uh heuristic. But the thing is is that what the the converse is not also isn't also true though. It's like just because the 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 naive framing is false doesn't mean the converse is true. So it's not the case that there's infinite flexibility with coordination and uh, and cooperation and what and information exchange, it it doesn't matter how altruistic and selfless and rational or irrational your population is. There's going to become a certain point of quantitative strain on any uh, like uh, institutional structure and any uh, means of <clears throat> allocation and decision making and so on and so forth. I mean, the idea that there's no such thing as a perfect way to make decisions, I think, should be obvious, but apparently it's not. Um, yeah. <laughs> everything has trade-offs and the more it's actually ranked choice voting right, exactly the uh, and you have you fix them you fix them <laughs> at the age of uh, 12 and uh, anyway. uh, <laughs> but uh, but so a lot of these things are converging on this idea of like there's no globally optimal system in general there's just many different locally ones but that's a different point for later too uh I just want to say that there's this good book I have called uh, Managerial Dilemma Dilemmas by Gary J. Miller, The Political Economy of Hierarchy. And what he, what he talks about in this okay. book is like uh, under conditions of hierarchy, neither command planning nor markets nor any combination thereof can maximize efficiency, let alone equity, let alone anything else. I mean, sorry. Hierarchy and incomplete information. If you have those two things, which are like incomplete information, which you always, always have, have it, always, <laughs> always, <laughs> always yeah. have asymmetric and incomplete. <laughs> always, it doesn't in, in transaction costs yeah. and search costs in any realistic world, uh, and space and time issues and irreversibility and da 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 and endogeneity and correlation of information and whatever else. So, like in any, in, you know, it's funny too though is the conditions under which. Command produces uh, efficient outcomes. Planning you can show mm -hmm. in uh, various theorems, and it wasn't the capitalists who showed this; it was the communists who showed this. There's an equivalent market system with a set of prices and rules that will give the same allocation as that command one. So for every for every single okay. for, so for any situation where command uh, works in planning theory and or markets work in neoclassical theory the other one also works and where any one of them doesn't work the other one doesn't work right so that's just like a the point and what's really interesting is that uh these two guys kantorovich and um this other uh koopmans uh Sean koopmans shared the nobel prize kantorovich was a soviet mathematician and central planning theorist koopmans was a neoclassical economist in europe they group the same thing, right? So, I mean, it's just like, and linear programming, dynamic programming, input-output analysis, statistical decision theory, uh, you know, operations management, uh, sectoral allocation models, material balances planning. These were made up by a, a dialogue between literally capitalist 
corporations and military funders in, in the West. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, Rand, it was Rand, uh, Rand Corp that did a lot of that, right? Socialists yeah. and the Rand Corp. That was actually like a third episode. Was it? I mean, Rand they're Corp. The, one of the most sinister orgs in the world. But, uh, but you <laughs> yeah. know, what's interesting though is that the original model of equilibrium it wasn't meant to prove capitalism. It was precisely to show why socialism can work. Because the what well what they wanted to show they were they were idealistic young people, and the military didn't like markets because you know obvious reasons I think. And then so, so they hired these yeah. ran hired them and they. What do they come across with the, you know, which ends up becoming the arrow debris model of equilibrium? It, it's, it's a, it's a planning theorem. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a, that's what you don't understand is that in, in this formalisms of equilibrium, central planning and markets are, are the same thing. They're not it's a, like, uh, like <laughs> what, what changes is the method of allocation. Again, the norms, the information, the institutions, the incentives, uh, the metrics, and so on. That's what changes, right? And scale and composition and all that other stuff. But anyway, so I think, uh, I mean, in my mind, this is all related, but if if you want me to show why this all comes together, I can't, like, in a sort of broader way. But uh, I think, like, if you line up each of these claims, you very quickly start to see why I am skeptical of any utopian uh, uh situation and and yeah why like uh, i don't it's just it's just why like uh i i like there's this critique that comes from people like john gray and so on and so on other people which is basically that uh soviet style state socialism and corporate american capitalism are are birds of a feather they're not opposed and it's not because of like some state capitalism thing it's because they're both modernist technocratic projects that try to reduce the world to rationality and governing by these technocrats and it's no accident they produce their models in conjunction with each other anyway mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think it's i i think it has a lot to do with the fact that they are both states and states inevitably have to because they're big giant hierarchies they have to have some sort of standardization and like reduction of information uh, from the bottom level to the bureaucrats that are in charge of right. decision making, and the only difference between the two really is like what type of bureaucrat is in charge of decision making, and like what the source of legitimacy is, and what the rules they go by are, and so um, you know in in either situation, um, like the the person who's actually in charge of deciding things is not going to have the actual information. Uh, or, like or the or the relevant uh, impact or self interest. So it's it's, yeah. it, it's a it's a vice. But there was a point you were making earlier though that I said I wanted to come back to. Do you remember what it was? There's I'm another sorry, point which is that you know bureaucracies are social networks and organizations of human mm-hmm. beings that come together to fulfill a functional purpose. They stratify command and they uh, distribute information and tasks and they formalize them and standardize them. All right. Now, in order for that to like work success, I mean, whatever. If you take all the stuff I just said together, right? A couple things follow. First of all, a bureaucracy that doesn't um, formalize itself and make itself like a self-perpetuating enclosed uh, organization is just going to rip it. That's it. It's going to rip itself at the seams through the different factional interests, which is why you need some degree of self-perpetuating closure. I see. Yeah. Oh, you're probably yes. thinking of the redistributional yes. coalition thing? 
what, uh, yeah. the point I wanted to be with that one is I'll make later, but the point is, is that for a bureaucracy to serve a function well, it needs to have a degree of non-functionality. It needs to uh, prevent itself from being destroyed. Mm-hmm. And but, even if it yeah. didn't do that, though, that's the natural tendency. Now, there's many reasons I can show why this is true. I, I can show you there's dozens of ways you could come to the same conclusion I just said, but including the previous elements I just said. But more importantly, it's the self that ties together all those previous things because now you start to realize that uh, self-perpetuation is an emergent property of the social network properties and organizational properties of bureaucracy, even if they're like m- maximally efficient and designed to serve a function. And they are never going to solve. They're only going to minimize and satisfy the impact, interest, know-how, interest, uh, information enforcement, um, inside, outside, local, global, computational. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so that's just a general point. Even a, before centralization, this is why both markets and central planning fail in practice. Anyway, that's why we can stop there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That's like the social science uh, sort of broad observation in, in, you know, societies generally uh, that I've just observed in a more kind of um, and, and, and read about and heard about in the more kind of like the microcosm of like uh, political organizing, where if you want to get something super, super stable, uh, like, you know, fucking DNC shit, uh, then you end up with that, but it's full of fucking, you know, Democrats, for example, right? And then, uh, and so it's like stable and it goes in a direction, but the direction is not necessarily good. And it's run by, like you said, like a bunch of fucking dipshits. <laughs> and, uh, but then if you want something that's like more like the IWW, uh, where it's like, well, it's, you know, we can have rules and stuff. Uh, let's not be too formal, and we'll just kind of like go by the seat of our pants for the most part. Uh, then, like the IWW is in like a constant state of turmoil and collapse, uh, from what I've heard, you know. And and so and like I can definitely attest to that in my experience here. Um, even though, like, and so it's like, well, of course they're fucking burning out. Like they're they're always at odds with each other, and and the energy goes nowhere, you know. And it's really frustrating to watch. Uh, yeah, it's like a weird dialectic between, um, you know, wanting to do anarchism and needing to confront a centralized. Exactly. 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 Um, and, and the, you know, I mean, it's sort of part and parcel with the rest of the conversation, but like much of it does have to do with the uh management of resources um uh, and and um and labor um and so it's it's just very interesting to from the more kind of like anarchist uh like you know the IWW style stuff you're seeing like i'm seeing like a lot of in 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 DC anyway you know like the really granular specific stuff like a lot of talking about uh, the stuff that's out there and then not necessarily getting involved with it or getting involved with like one thing. And then it either just kind of rides on its own momentum because it, it becomes a little formalized 
um, or it completely breaks down almost immediately because it doesn't formalize. Um, or if they try to formalize it, then somebody brings up like some fucking objection. Um, and it just all just falls apart. Right. You know, because like, you can't, you, like, you can't even get it to the point of formalization. So, <laughs> so that's, you know, and then, and at the same time, like you said, like, you know, if you're confronting centralized power and you're not able to, uh, create the stable structure, then you're not really confronting it. Really. You're just sort of, um, making noise. Um, unfortunately. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I think this is actually one reason why I like the, the, like the MLs, um, are MLs is because they recognize that paradox or that issue, but mm -hmm. then, yeah, I see where they're coming, they're coming from. from, right? Yeah. It's just that, like, it doesn't mean that they don't have problems too. Right. So right. like, well, okay. So you picked a team in terms of like this paradox, um, but it's still a fucking paradox, you know? So you chose, you chose right. dipshits over chaos. Uh, <laughs> and I guess that's just how it's going to be for you, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And of course, we want to abolish the state immediately with no concern about imperialism. Right. So that's our big <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we just, uh, you know, as anarchists, we don't read books, we don't do anything important. Yeah. All right, so. Uh, I don't want to literally start over, but I realized as I just said to you the messages that I'm making this harder for myself than I have to. Because what I was just doing okay. was giving effective – I was actually leading up to something more general, which is a generalized critique of markets, bureaucracies, states, planning, and hierarchy and centralization. And all that stuff is mm. – That's what yeah. this show is well, all right, about. Right. But, the, but the specific thing for the ecological issue is actually much simpler for me to make is what I – So okay. – all the stuff I said before is relevant, but the simple first thing that's just like important to notice is that um, the costs and constraints of time, space, information, classification, metrics, enforcement, coordination, and self-perpetuation mm -hmm. are a function of the size of an organization, its uh, complexity, its diversity, its stratification, its hierarchy, uh, and its uh, incentive structure, okay? It's not a linear relation because there's some economies of scale and scope, but it's pretty, uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty whatever. The next point is is that if a due to the nature of coordination of factions of the interest and interest and know-how issue and the enforcement issue, if a social network and organization doesn't provide for its self-perpetuation, it'll rip itself apart. Which is why, ironically enough, as I was saying. Bureaucracies need to institutionalize a kind of level of inefficiency, basically perpetuating themselves irrespective of their task, or else they just can't work at all. So it's like a, at least over a long period of time, they can work for you know a small local area for a little period of time. Um, and then you know once you start to get to different bureaucracies interacting, which each have different metrics, norms, locations, information, and so on, and then you just start to get to this absurdly complex. Uh, problem that's not even empirical it's actually formal because like mixing metric systems like unless you have like a, a meta logic in which you can sort of translate everything the best you're going to get is something like the equivalent of like an algorithmic pigeon for lack of a better word but uh yeah like a standardized protocol yeah. and then thing. you know but the more standardized and universalized your protocol is the less robust it is the less localized conditions so it's always yeah. trade-offs and i mean 
this is just it's just always trade-offs there's no perfect system especially not except for tcp okay. which is perfect <laughs> um it's funny, uh, there's a really good book uh, called protocol by uh i think the guy's name is uh it's alexander galloway great book he argues it's okay. called How Control Exists After Decentralization, and his point is that the internet is not this decentralized uh, paradise of, uh, of rhizomatic networks or whatever. But anyway. Um, yeah. So that's a function of that stuff, and that's a generalized critique of uh, planning and bureaucracy. But there's also a few other issues. So first of all, like... <clears throat> Centralization and hierarchy are very good at expanding their share of power and, cent- and perpetuating themselves and growing, uh, which is like because the more cent- – they, because they start to get like um, – because of fixed costs due to time and space and energy and land and coordination and so on, the more they go grow, like the, uh, the more – relative their like efficiency is over their cost now one can hear this and say oh that sounds great that means we should have large groups but back to the matter is is that mm-hmm. actually what that does is it skews their like uh it skews their relative uh you know marginal costs of resources because it makes fixed uh depleting and deteriorating resources cheaper for them relative to other ones uh like and yeah uh bureaucracies and so on have you know or okay let's say you're a specialist who knows something really t- uh, specific and complex like you know nuclear or whatever or you have a secret list of connections to a bunch of other people that you use for brokerage or your company your firm just figured out how to make a new way of producing something you don't want that information to get out because it lowers your relative advantage even if you're some like and not only that, but it actually, by inducing competition outside of you, even if you're not doing it for selfish motives, it's going to make it harder for you to do your job. So there's a uh, tendency towards like the confinement of information and knowledge and skills and resources that's concomitant with this. So you get, you get, to, you get the artificial um, cheapening of fixed uh, deteriorating stock resources, and you get the artificial inflation of costs of general specialized knowledge resources and that's literally the word because that means that you're in uh incentivizing things which are fixed and rival and excludable and deteriorate and disincentivizing those which don't anyway uh there's also the fact that as just a simple fact the larger the more hierarchical more centralized and more uh the uh, complex an organization is the more centralized and technological social logistical and ecological infrastructure it's going to require this is just a very straightforward i mean it's not a linear relationship but it is uh it is a relationship and it's a real one and have you have you read blair fix's work on um hierarchical organization uh no who's it blair. blair fix um yeah I'll, I'll give you his ad on on twitter later but uh basically his his thesis is that uh, by the laws of thermodynamics, because hierarchies are an organized structure, they require continuous energy right. input, and the larger it gets, the more and it, energy and input it's, it requires. And it's non—it's non-linear; it needs constantly growing energy yeah. things. And that's that was my again next point that I wanted to make, which is <laughs> that's that's true. Even you know, you can think of this as a very social on a social level because 
the larger you get, the more your factions, the more specialized you're going to get, the more pressure there's going to be on resource distribution, which means you need ever-accelerating resources to distribute to your cronies. Yeah, mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we have seen this yeah. empirically hold in every bureaucracy in history. I don't care what yep. you say. Yep. And it doesn't matter how noble and high-minded they are. Right. So you talked about this thing of being ripped apart at the seams. There's just a couple good books. One's called Subversive Institutions. One's called Political Epistemics. And one's uh, by this guy, Vladimir Popov, which I think is a, a really important book to this subject here. And uh, they talk about how the Soviet Union was not an economic failure because actually transactional efficiency of their firms was the same as European. It was political. Their faction... And they won the space race. Well, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, and like, yeah. But So they had a highly centralized planning system and bureaucracy, but then... As is wont to happen, this led to factionalization and capture by different interest groups, mm -hmm. namely the specialists, the technocrats, the military, the diplomatic and foreign service, and like advocates for the workers or whatever. Uh, and one, once Soviet growth started to decline, this literally just ripped it apart at the seams, uh, obviously accelerated by corruption, crime, uh, foreign uh malfeasance and uh you know the policies of people like gorbachev and uh, uh yeltsin but the general point holds and it's also interesting because that was the reason it got ripped apart but the reason that growth started to slow in the soviet union uh, in the first place was actually because of this stuff too because as i was saying they had an incentive towards high throughput centralized stock investment and less sorts to uh services, knowledge, low capital, and so on and so forth. And that was great when mm -hmm. what they wanted to do was rapidly create a, like, you know, coal stocks, oil stocks, pig iron, so on and so forth, and to produce um, military equipment, and even to organize things like education and healthcare, because there you just, like, you give resources, and then you let the specialists do it themselves in the local area. Um, but the problem is, is that that exhausts itself once there is no longer marginal returns on adding more shit to your system so like once just adding energy and, and raw materials to your system is no longer is marginally beneficial the system's the growth is going to slow down and the soviets themselves and the planning theorists themselves noticed this and uh actually interestingly khrushchev noticed it and tried to reform the economy and uh, he always gets hated on by mls but per capita income growth was the highest under khrushchev of any of them mm -hmm. uh and then brezhnev mm -hmm. ossified the system and brought it back and a great book on that is uh, it's called soviet fates and lost alternatives but um uh, the other thing is is that because of the nature of information of classifying uh sorting and allocating the bigger and more hierarchical and less locally specified and more high throughput an organization is the the more it's going to be, it's like it's computationally, informationally, and materially cheaper for them to allocate, extract, enclose, and distribute like standardizable, fixed uh, commodity stocks of things, you know, like, yeah, stock, uh, pig iron, widgets, coal, oil. But when you start to deal with non-quantifiable things like, you know, carbon emissions in the same, I mean, it's, it's not the same kind of quantifiable, you know, CO2 emissions, ecological stocks and sinks. Um, good. Stuff that you have to limit instead of. Well, that, that's true, too. But also uh, it's, it's they're, they're diffuse. They're hard to calculate and they're hard to. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and so okay. like so things like science, art, uh, organization, literature, the professions. 
um, CO2 emission reduction, um, uh, computerization, so on and so forth, those become difficult um, and more and more difficult. And actually, there's a great book on Soviet mm -hmm. cybernetics um, called uh, it's uh, uh, it's not the famous it's not the uh, one that everybody reads about Cybersyn. This is in uh, the Soviet Union. There was this um, they tried to do their own. Oh, it's called From New Speak to Cyberspeak, and he talks about the internal structural okay. system of the Soviet Union, despite having the best educated and the best cyberneticists in the world, it totally mm. failed. And America's mm. ARPANET did really well, but uh, and, uh, uh, there's a really good book on that, The Entrepreneurial State by Maticato. But um, but the, the this book by Gerovich from New Speak to Cyberspeak, it totally failed in the Soviet Union. And, you know, actually the cyberstate people who mixed uh, decentralization, localization, and centralization and effectively invented the internet ahead of time, tried to tell the Soviets, like, no, you can't do it this way. You know, Stafford Beer tried to reach out to them. He's like, no, like, you know, it's a separate story, but like to decentralize, you need to like decentralize it. And they just didn't listen because they didn't want to lose the informational and logistical and infrastructural control. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's, so there's that show, right? So we have, the artificial cheapening of fixed stocks of resources and the artificial uh, uh, making expensive of services, goods, information. We have the um, tendency towards easy to classify, easy to grow, easy to accumulate resources, disincentive against uh, services, diverse goods, local stuff, intellectual stuff. You have the competing issues of factionalization of an ever-needing resource stocks. You have the fact that if you're centralized, you literally need a centralized uh, technological, material, energetic, and ecological infrastructure, and that needs to be mm -hmm. continually growing. Uh, and wait, wait, so, uh, wait, so, so is the is this problem thing? I'm trying oh, to ahead. tie it all together. It's a snappy quote. So, uh, and so you have a, and yeah, you have no the problem. information enforcement issues. You have the interest issues. You have the specialization stuff, the ghettoization thing. You have. Um, the the fact that it's very good at accumulating stocks of resources but the more it does that the more the higher rate at which it needs to extract resources to keep the same level of growth especially because you start to get diseconomies of scale from storage and extraction and enclosure and protection and logistics so all of these pressures together which we have seen operate in every bureaucracy in history to varying degrees and the Popov book does a really great comparative study of that uh the, these, this makes central planning and centralized bureaucracies totally inimical to the kinds of things that are necessary for a transition to an ecological economy. It requires mm. throughput growth. It requires throughput stocks. It requires enclosure. It requires extract, extraction. It requires surveillance. It requires standardized widgets of goods. It requires uh, deprioritizing non-rival, non-excludable intellectual goods and extra priority. All the things that a state exactly, needs, and that's James uh, Scott seeing like a yeah. state is another great uh, discussion of this. So all of the points mm -hmm. I just made, this, those can actually be made independently of all the stuff I said in the first half. But I think it should be clear that they do go together because the the two sets of dynamics just like it, it, it means that you're setting yourself up for a system which is either going to collapse or which is going to self perpetuate, self perpetuatingly, you know, grow itself or both. But it's not, you know, it's a, but you're not, it's not going to work for what we need to do, which is that the biggest problem in the world right now is overproduction, misproduction, and misallocation. Yeah. So 
capacity utilization is at 80% globally, labor force participation is at 60%, um, and urban land use is like 40%, but non-urban land use is like 500% over. It's one of the nine planetary boundaries. So, so we have a thing where, yeah. what do we have? We have the artificial restriction and enclosure of intellectual, social, human, scientific, cultural, uh, network, informational goods, and the artificial cheapening in use of land, energy, ecological stocks, and sinks. We have uh, mass overproduction of all primary products. We have mass overuse and misuse of land. We have oh, we are, our economy is overly capitalized. Um, that, you know, forty percent of people don't even need to work for the system to, to maintain itself. We produce mm-hmm. basically every good and commodity at least like three times as much as we need to, but then we artificially restrict access to it. So you know, we have enough. One of my favorite stats is that um, 99% of all industrial products are waste within six weeks. And this was as yeah. of like 1991. And 80% of products are only made uh, right. to be used one and, time. Mm-hmm. And um, what is it like? The, I mean, you know, we produce three times as much food as is needed, but that, it's, that also understates yeah. it because there's food stocks, there's massive food waste at both the production point and distribution. And most right. agriculture. Yep. Is it for food? <laughs> yeah. It's for industry. Yeah. <laughs> and and if America didn't subsidize its agriculture through land subsidies, interest rate subsidies, water subsidies, fossil fuel subsidies, and protectionism, America would literally just not produce food except in like urban gardens and decentralized plots. Yeah, we would all start. Well, no, we wouldn't do that. We would just get yeah, cheaper, higher was... quality food from other people who are better at growing it. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> it's just like like uh like I, I kind of think that people have been de-skilled enough that uh that we would not be able to produce enough food if they weren't uh paying the central producers to, you know, have all these uh like command over these giant hierarchies to force other workers to well, do the history same thing. shows that when humans are de-skilled with regards to agriculture and then they need to relearn it, they're actually very good at doing so. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, oh, people okay. are pretty, good pretty quick with that one, yeah. I mean it's not it's not like oh, uh, it's not going to happen overnight. It would be, it, you know, if we have, if we snapped our fingers, years, a, lot, right. a lot of people would die, right? Mm-hmm. If we snapped, our fingers. but if yeah. it was, so we wouldn't save everyone, but right. we wouldn't lose but everyone even, either. Even in the, even in the Soviet okay. Union, though, they, I mean, what you know, they by the fifties and sixties, you know, they had a shit ton of garden plots throughout all of their cities. They had all these urban people going back to agriculture to for their own home production and. Uh, they ended up with a decentralized agricultural system on top of their centralized one anyway. Like mm. um, in Cuba, that was like relearning because they were input, they were uh, uh, importing most food and energy, and then they just couldn't do so anymore. And then all these farmers on their plots of land were just like, oh, well, then we're just going to go back to the techniques we used before we were forced to do centralized production and high stock uh, use and uh, petroleum-based agriculture. And then the state afterwards, like, you know, they did some coordination and diffusion of these techniques, but they took credit uh, for like, you know, for socialism, what was effectively just the return to uh, like pre-existing non-state yeah, exactly. living. <laughs> we see this with agriculture yeah. a lot. And I mean, it's just like, uh-huh. so I, I, I don't know. Like, I'm... So, so I, I, I got to ask, um, so this, this thing that you were talking about with um, the Soviet Union uh, growing really rapidly and being able to produce like basic resources, um, but then getting to a point where they were overproducing. Um, 
Yeah. So, like, um, what, what, do you think that's akin to the point around the late 19th century where um, productivity continued to grow, but population growth declined? Where, like, basically it was like um, the the demand for resources stopped growing, and so they they came to this crisis of like our whole system was geared around the demand for resources continually growing and us being able to satisfy that. And now we have to do something else. Is well, that what the it problem was more is? a problem of misallocation. So they were overproducing in one area and underproducing in the other. So eventually productivity okay. started to decline. Um, not, not absolute productivity. Okay. Like the transactional efficiency of firm was still, if you add 10 units of energy, you get 10, whatever of output, but uh, it's like the, <laughs> But, but productivity growth started to stagnate, and they couldn't support the ever-growing burdens of the Soviet state. I mean, it's just a, uh, like, you know, J.K. Okay. Galbraith came to the Soviet Union as an advisor, and he was like, look, what, you know, if you wanted to solve your problem overnight, he's like, well, all you have to do is, like, um, legalize, like, private industry and petty services and commerce. Legalize good. it. And then, and then effectively, like lower everybody's real wage by like tripling the price of uh, consumer goods. And he's like, within a year, you'll have all your uh, rationing and uh, hoarding issues over, and your economy will switch over. Uh, That's cool. I but love like, rationing. It, there's no way they could do that because there would be riots, right? If if everybody yeah. fell yeah. by sixty six percent, I mean, it was just so. That was the you know they could have done something a slow transition to that in the sixties, but by the time they were in the eighties. The fixed costs and scrap costs were so um, high, it was impossible, which is ironically why Russia and the former Soviet states did, like, for their capitalists at least, did so well in capitalism because they had a shit, over, shit ton of an oversupplied heavy capital. Um, and then once they were on a global market, it became uh, marginally efficient again, but they bought it at fire sale prices. So they effectively just like dumped a shit ton of capital on the rest of the world and then used the proceeds to buy whatever consumer goods they wanted because they could do so now. And they mm-hmm. just billionaires. I mean, so it's just like, like, uh, it's ironically good for building billionaires. It's not so good as China shows, but it's not so good for, uh, you know, these other purposes. And, uh, there's a Soviet, uh, not a Soviet, but a socialist planning textbook by Michael Elman. And it's like third or fourth edition now. And he talks about a lot of this stuff. I mean, the Soviet system was really good at the military. It was really good at primary products, and it was really good mm-hmm. at extraction and throughput and land-intensive production. And it was good at some things like uh, at like urbanization, education, literacy, and health. But it wasn't good at uh, consumer goods, petty goods and services, um, environmental things, cybernetics, decentralized things, uh, situation-specific stuff, um, non-heavy throughput production, uh, transition, stability, and so on. Right? So it's like yeah, and so uh, the way. That's really interesting. One other. Wait, oh no, I'm forgetting the Michael Elman book. And then, oh, Robert Putnam's from Farm to Factory, which all the MLs cite, which is funny because in that book he literally talks about how like it was like a pretty amazing breakneck uh, industrialization, but it, it was like it was like because the transition they were doing to uh, like the kind of production they were doing was not like easy but relatively straightforward and um and all they had they had a massively oversupplied labor force and all this uncultivated land and all this stuff and so they literally just basically dispossessed the peasantry and then said all right 
take as much shit as you can out of the ground as possible and put it in these one in these areas, and that's what the uh, the magnetic mountain book is also about. Um, but uh, also interestingly enough, uh, Kotkin talks about in the second Stalin biography. He talks about how the dispossession of the peasantry actually led to a decline in available surplus for industrialization. So the typical narrative that goes that he had to dispossess the peasantry to industrialize, at least in terms of surplus, is wrong. Um, it, it, did, it did produce excess labor and a free urbanized labor force, which they used, but actually they got more um, credit for surplus credit for industrialization from foreign trade and foreign credit than they did from dispossessing the peasantry. So... <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I know that uh, our our other co-host uh, Peter would want me to ask you: um, Have you have you ever heard of the concept of adhocracy? No. What is it? So it's basically the idea that uh, it's sort of like a bureaucracy, but rather than being a persistent organization, um, it would be an organization that's formed to do a specific task and then dissolves as right. soon as it's and done. And that's the idea of the system, but. So I, what we see is that uh-huh. that's, I mean, that's obviously like what we'd want if we wanted that. But uh, so far, I mean, what we see from incorporation and from the church and from early settlements and these uh, big, you know, joint stock companies is like they don't just go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. Especially they find the reasons for existing at the very least. What? I said they 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 ride on their momentum, but they find other reasons for existing. Basically. Exactly. And that's yeah. what I was saying earlier. In order for bureaucracy to be efficient, they actually ironically have to do that, or else they'll get ripped mm-hmm. apart. Right. Now, now there's one exception yeah. to this, though, and it's the idea like, you know, the only thing that stops a good guy, bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. It's like if <laughs> you institutionalize a means to like shut down uh, uh, like an organization like that, like once its task is complete from the outside, then you actually could do it, but then you have to deal with the problem of what happens to that enforcer because <laughs> who watches the watchman or whatever. So, uh, but I've often had this idea of like, like I was trying, I was coming like, like temporary liminal, like state-like entities was the term I came up with for it. And it would be like, if there's, if there's an asteroid coming towards the earth or when a meteor heading towards the earth, like I'm not going to moan and, clutch pearls about establishing a hierarchy to stop it if that's what will do it so i mean it's so but i don't want it to persist so what what do we do we figure out a way but the problem is it's like i don't know if this would work it's just like i don't know so you stop the meteor meteor and then you know what do you do about future meteors you need to keep the bureaucracy around to make sure that the future meteors yeah um Yeah. And, but you know, for so things like meteors, the space program, climate change, I think that these are okay. But the problem is, is that hierarchies based on merit and talent and expertise uh, don't, aren't very stable because they require people who are more experienced, better, uh, more competent, and whatever to rise above each other. But that deteriorates. Yeah, it's like there's less replaceability among the members. I think the thing that that makes it stable is if like de-skilling is really the thing. Like it, a hierarchy is very stable if any part is replaceable. So if someone decides to like be a human for once and uh, do something normal, then you have to replace them, and you have to do that with someone who has the you know equivalent ability of the person you're replacing. And so like in order to do that, it has to be you know, 
either de-skilled or there needs to be standard information that they get or mm. what have you. Um, yes, and, and more uh, open access to information, skills, knowledge, whatever. Yeah. But as we like, have you read? Uh, have you read uh, yeah, Lewis Mumford much? Yeah. Yeah, like it's, great. it's great. It's great. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of what a lot of this. Yeah. My thought is influenced by that. You know, Ivan Illich and uh, mm-hmm. Lewis Mumford and Bookchin, obviously, and uh, you know, yeah. uh, and James Scott, and uh, I love all these yeah. people. But uh, I mean, they're just really smart. But uh, Jane Jacob. So we're uh, we're so we're getting uh, we're getting pretty far along. So uh, let's uh, just for the last little bit talk about someone uh, that we both hate. Uh, Matt Bruno. <laughs> uh, okay, I think I uh, I think we can, I can even connect that to uh, perfect. Well, perfect. I feel bad because <laughs> yeah. the first half I rambled and I was interested in what I was talking about, but I just very quickly summarized the main argument in a much simpler way in the second half. Anyway, it's just, uh, <laughs> hopefully the two work together in the recording. But Matt Bruno is an insufferable dipshit. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> he uh, literally exemplifies the most obnoxious, pedantic, socially inept form of well, actually, fucking debate club dude there is. <laughs> Every single one of his proposals depends on the presumption of it already having been successful to work in the first place. So it's like, it's like yeah. if we had enough power that uh, our unions could bargain for a better managerial standard of. Uh, of hiring and firing, then <laughs> we could have this like computational system. But it's like, but if you, oh, had yeah, right. you wouldn't need it in the first place. It was yes, just, exactly. If you already <laughs> have sufficient power to do that, you don't need the fucking. Oh, it's just like, what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. and then, yeah. yeah. Ah! So, so my favorite one, my favorite one of his is the sovereign wealth fund uh-huh. idea, which is uh, we're going to create a basic income. And also avoid inflation uh, by not issuing money, which is, of course, uh, impossible to do because MMT is bullshit, according to him. Metalism is, is the correct thing. And uh, the way that we do that, uh, the way that we, avoid, that we avoid inflation and redistribute wealth is by buying stocks from rich people, buying stocks and assets, <laughs> and uh paying people dividends based off of the uh the gain in in asset prices which of course is not inflation at all <laughs> uh, i i mean what's funny about that is that it's only like uh in order for it to not be inflation you'd have to assume you have a competitive uh perfect market economy which a presumption of his argument is that that doesn't exist so it's kind of funny <laughs> i mean i would argue that in order to have any dividends you have to have asset price inflation because otherwise what, what are what you the, gaining yeah, yeah. if the price of the asset stays the same then you no, can't pay well, any but dividends that's the point is that in a perfect market efficient market the, in the construct thereof those asset price increases will reflect actual productivity increases but of course in, right oh yeah okay in a world okay. that doesn't that's exist that's not that's a myth <laughs> that doesn't exist so a, yeah in a world where a machine can absorb carbon right. from the atmosphere <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> It's like it's, and that one was one of those fucking pure. Like, oh like, my okay, god! So just to, whatever. If people don't know about this, Matt Breunig. Matt Breunig. <laughs> yeah. Okay, he said, uh, you know, he made this argument for geoengineering, and the way his argument was was like, oh, you support reforestation, and that's engineering. Humans have always engineered the climate, and it's like, look, like, which has always worked out really I mean, well. <laughs> or whatever, but the idea is like this: it's like, look. 
that's clearly not how people mean uh, geoengineering. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah. like our opposition to geoengineering isn't because it's called geoengineering and because yeah. it fits some formal like analytic criteria. It's because of the specifics of it. And so if mm-hmm. reforestation is a form of climate engineering, then all I would say is, okay, then there are some geoengineering I support and some I don't. Oh, all you have yeah. to say to that, but you know, he tries to make it like this principled argument, but no one's opposition to geoengineering is principled. I mean, sometimes it's aesthetic. He's a ceteris paribus nerd. Uh, yeah, but he doesn't actually ceteris paribus. Uh, he, he requires an obscene <laughs> number of extraneous assumptions to yeah. Make, yeah. make his ideas work <laughs> at all. And so he tried to claim then that geoengineering was like better because if you had a hypothetical carbon sucking machine (laughs) and it was like and as me and everyone else said if we had a fucking 100% efficient hypothetical carbon machine then yes we would support it like it's just like but but that (laughs) doesn't exist it won't exist because it's an impossibility Mm -hmm. and if we divert resources to trying to find it that's a waste of resources when we we have a great carbon sucking machine as it is it's called fucking trees (laughs) <laughs> and then he tried to argue that uh, trees take up more land and therefore are not as good as a carbon sucking machine. <laughs> he said the only reason that people liked him is aesthetics. Yeah. Never seen a tree in his life. <laughs> but yeah. what's funny though is that the ecological people have done this, and it's actually the opposite: is that any sufficient machine for sequestering and extracting carbon would actually just need to be as big as the industrial capacity that we have. Yep. So, so it's actually the opposite of what he said. But anyway, mm-hmm, um, <laughs> he said, he yeah, said, yeah. Um, yeah. So he said the aesthetic thing that people who support it just because of it. Are, and it's like it's such projection because it's clear that his thing is that he likes high technology and and he's so yes. it's an aestheticism for him. I don't care. I don't care what it yes. looks like. And as I and I, we all said, look, if your machine existed, we would support it. So it doesn't work. And like. Uh, but also, trees do look better than machines. Just yeah. to set the records, generally, they're they're each have their own aesthetic and their own way. I don't see it's just like, but yeah. uh, but and another thing though is that he said, you know, someone was like, oh, because uh, without deep, without without reforestation, you know, you get desertification or whatever. And he's like, well, animals live in deserts too. Why are they? Uh, what? Why? Are, uh, why, are, why are they not as good as the other ones? It's like you stupid dipshit. Think yeah. of the truth. Ah! Maybe, maybe we should put Matt. In, in a desert and see how he feels about it. Yeah, <laughs> about its wonderful desert ecology. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, desert ecologies are great. I don't, but you don't want no, them yeah, to cover totally. the fucking entire but... surface mass of the planet. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then what else did he say? Though it's just like all. I don't, it was just uh, like like every. Oh, the thing about uh, machines. Oh yeah, yeah. People. No, but yeah, even on the geoengineering uh, thing, the last thing I was saying is that the whole thing was that look. We need to do climate change stuff now, and we need to do it now. We yes. have a solution now. It's reforestation. If you want to call that geoengineering, then fine. We support a kind yeah, of whatever. geoengineering, but 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 we yeah. can't wait for a future hypothetical machine, especially one that we know to be impossible, especially when we have an available opportunity yes. right now. And again, exactly. it goes to this idea of where my whole point about we don't want to lock ourselves into these big technological, socio-technical infrastructures because of their high fixed costs, their high scrap costs, their contingency and their path dependence and their centralization. 
when we could do the opposite and reduce waste and resource use and so on. And then we have free resources to experiment with other things. And I think that's a very important point. It actually ties the Brunig thing to the uh, geoengineering thing, to the uh, central planning thing, to the ecological issue thing, to all. And then also with the de-skilling thing, uh, lots of people can plant trees and no one can build a magic exactly. machine that exactly. sucks carbon out of the exactly. atmosphere. And, and uh, degrowth, waste reduction, and refab- refabrication and refurbishment is labor intensive, but yeah. not skilled or at least not hard to acquire skills. So everybody can yeah. plant, everybody can insulate. Not everybody, but you know what I mean. Like it's like very. And if anyone does have the skills to plant trees, DM me so that I know how to do it because I'm trying to be a tree planting yeah. guy now. And then right. it's just, and it's like. Done with politics. I'm getting you know, a tree planting guy. It's like if fucking um if during Obama, right, if he had, you know, had the chutzpah to have been oh. like like if he had his response to the financial crisis. Well, but ba- literally though, if his response to the financial crisis was I'm going <laughs> to dump like 3 trillion dollars worth of, you know, fiat money into the economy and direct it all towards, you know, uh-huh. infrastructure refurbishment, reforestation, green energy, waste reduction, we'd still have the ecological Right, right. We still have an ecological crisis, but that was actually a transition point that would have been pretty effective. I mean, it wouldn't again; it wouldn't have saved us. Uh, yeah. uh, John Bellamy Foster has a thing he calls it like a capitalism and degrowth and impossibility theorem. He pretty convincingly argues they're completely incompatible. Yeah, I agree I, with that I, for sure. But I think I think it, they're incompatible yeah. for the same reason I think that central planning is not viable in the long run for solving. Um, climate crisis but there is actually one thing i want to say too about that which is i was talking to live in the dms or whatever and what i said was like look like because basically i said look states are incompatible with this and, and she asked like so does that mean like states are incompatible with like you know survival of the human race and, she, and i said yes and she said like <laughs> so we have to abolish, we somehow have to abolish states in the next 11 years and i understand why that was to go to but i wouldn't that's not my answer like my answer because my answer is not that I'm a fucking megalomaniacal central planner who snaps my fingers and abolishes the state. That abolishing the state in the military is going to be a fucking long ass process that we're going to yep. lose. That we're yeah, going to so lose difficult. a lot of t- the time yep. and, ha- yep. and regroup and then go again. It's not like we're going to fucking yep. do it overnight. Yeah, but- yeah, exactly. And then also, I think we've mentioned this on the show before, but like, if you abolish the state tomorrow, like millions of uh, people, nobody knows die. what the fuck to do with themselves. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if millions of people yeah. died, but there would be a massive decline in living standards for a brief period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, well, you know, people depend on the state to provide them with food and shelter and all this Bureau- kind of stuff. Bureaucrats professionals. Without instantly re- reconfiguring supply chains or coming up with new ones to supply people with food and shelter and all that basic shit that, like, well, what we find die. actually is that the rural areas would bounce back very quickly. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and uh, right, but that's a minority. That's well, a tiny minority of gonna, humans. And actually, I was say, right and the coastal urban areas, the the people who would get okay. fucked are uh, the suburbs We're, and <laughs> yeah, the Midwest. West. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So me. I mean, me too. <laughs> yeah. But 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 uh, it's just but um. But <laughs> even I still don't, I don't know. Like yeah. I I just like um. There would, I mean, because you know, professionals, uh, bureaucrats, technocrats, military people, arms, insurance, finance, da da da. They all literally depend on the state for their real estate. They all depend on the state. Exactly. But yeah. I mean, at the same time, though, 
am I really going to shed a tear if all of a sudden they have the rug pulled out from under them? But uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but but also, like, you know, even if you take historical examples, I think those historical examples happen in the context where there wasn't massive ecosystem collapse happening all around where, like, you know, maybe people could bounce back because there was an ecosystem to support them, whereas now there's not so as much of what that. what Jared Diamond in his class book doesn't, seem to understand is that the big variable isn't overhang of ecology due to civilization it's it's due to what i call forced settlement it's that if you can't fucking leave an area then all of his examples of societies that collapsed were on in islands in mountain valleys in um in peninsulas in they're Mm -hmm. all surrounded and as james scott points out in against the grain is that actually if you look at these so-called collapses the, the population in the city went down, but it rose everywhere else, which just means the people just left. And they didn't, they didn't. I was actually going to bring that up, by the way. But yeah, like the urbanization essentially is how you get through that. Yeah, and because yeah. and but and like a lot of the tribes that you know we encounter in Amazonia, who we say, oh, these uncontacted lost tribes. A lot, <laughs> a lot of them are actually people who are in these uh, Mesoamerican empires who, after the collapse, were like. When like the when the when the king or whatever gets killed, they just like looked around and like, oh fuck, dude, let's make a run for it now before they get to us. Yep, and they yep, yep. and, and they oh, and they cool. ran into the fucking jungle and they just were like, great, now we get the life. And then you know, Jim Scott talks about this in the Zomia, the same concept in the up in Southeast Asia. And these people go up there and they like voluntarily learn to stop reading. And so then the, <laughs> so then, so then the, the Chinese the, the Chinese census taker comes up there, a bureaucrat, and they, oh, sorry, we can't, uh, we can't read. <laughs> but uh, it's just, I don't know. I don't, the, the, so the big thing for me is migration, freedom of movement. But as Cuba showed, even that can be circumvented if you have favorable condition, favorable conditions. Mm-hmm. However. Cuba's not the miracle everybody thinks it is. They now eat, import 80% of their food and energy anyway again. So it's just like whatever. But anyway, um, yeah. I, don't, I mean, yeah. Well, I think I think that's a good place to close out. Uh, we're we're, uh, we're going pretty long. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think we covered a lot of okay, really I, great stuff. I hope this wasn't the too uh, wordy one. Oh, no. No, it was great. I, yeah, I think we'd love to have you on again uh, in the future. Um yeah, everything was very interesting. Um, so, if you enjoyed that, uh, check out our other episodes. Uh, you can find our podcast at uh, neighborsciencepodcast.com. I almost said Post Scarcity Man- <laughs> Magazine, but I didn't. <laughs> I always do that. Uh, uh, our Twitter is uh, at NeighborsciPod. I am at Handle of Rye. Chris is at Solidarity underscore Goth. Uh, young Neocon is at Young <laughs> With Neocon. With a Y. I mean, with the U, with the U, with the U, with the U, I mean. Do you have anything you want to plug or? Uh, me? Uh, well, check out my sound. Like no, uh, I don't have anything. <laughs> um, do, uh, do you want, do you all want me to like post, do you have a place you could post links to like books and stuff that people might want? Uh, yeah. So I wrote down, uh, like eight of the books that you've mentioned so far, probably only like, uh, that, that's probably only covering like a third well, of, I have them, but, a lot uh, of them. Yeah. I usually put some in the show description. So if you wanna if you wanna uh, like DM me the books, I'll put them all Great. in the show notes. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Uh, so check out uh, books. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. Uh, Have a good thanks night. everyone. And uh, Have a good thanks, night. young Neocon. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>